When Donald Trump launched his campaign for president in 2016, it was down that famous escalator in the tower bearing his name. For Joe Biden, his first steps as a 2020 candidate were in a train station that now bears his name. It was fitting for the man who spent most of his career riding the rails to and from Washington. I started by taking the train when I got elected as a 29-year-old kid to the United States Senate. I started going back and forth every single day so I could be home in Wilmington every night with my two young boys as a single dad after I lost my wife. Soon, Amtrak became a part of Biden's political identity. Nobody literally in history has ridden Amtrak as much as me as a, as a conductor. No? <laughs> Over 8,000 round trips I have made, literally. 8,000 round trips between Washington and Wilmington. And with it came an extended family. Uh, the people who, uh, who tend, uh, tend to this station, the conductors who have become my personal and longtime and continued friends, they're a part of, uh, of my identity. Yes, folks, welcome. Joe Biden, do some identity politics then, loser. <laughs> uh, I'm Matt Lick with me, David Griscom. Hello, David. Hey, man, how are you doing, brother? Uh, heated, again. I feel like we started a lot of shows heated. Um, <laughs> this one especially. Uh, it's bad, folks. Uh, you know, fresh off of a fairly decent midterms, uh, I don't know if you would call it success, but um, defense. Uh, Joe Biden decides to sell out the trains that he has made part of his, as he said, identity. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> It's just this is one of those things that I think really shows you everything you need to know about the the rot at the heart of the Democratic Party, right? I mean, um, I mean, we we got we got a lot of these these things, some like fresh examples to get to, but just like the way that Biden actually does love to run on this, like I I grew up in Scranton and I understand the plight of the working people, or I love taking the train, so I understand what's going on with these people. Um, so that's why it hurts me so much to basically be, um, you know, one of the most powerful strike breakers in the United States of America right now. I mean, it's really despicable the way that there's this kind of faint of like, oh, I get how horrible this is, but I have to do it. You know, my hands are tied. Uh, it's when you Union Joe, Union Joe to Pinkerton Joe. So, I mean, like we got Sam Goodman um, coming up um, in a little bit to talk about COP27, where there actually was some pretty exciting and and, and, and important news. I'll, I'll just say for myself, I wasn't expecting to see the kind of movement on loss and damage that we saw. Um, so that's something to be uh, you know positive about. So we're going to have Sam Goodman on to talk about that. And then as always, folks, join us in the post game. Uh, we didn't do one last week, patreon.com slash left reckoning. So looking forward to getting back over there and hearing from everybody. But I mean, like, let's just jump into this, Max. I know you and I are both heated, and I feel like talking about anything else is a bit of a distraction for me right now. Um, so I think everybody knows uh, the news already. Uh, President Joe Biden um, has called upon Congress to force railroad workers um, back to work and is trying to use the full brunt of the United States um, government to deny workers their basic right uh, to to organize. And I don't know... Um, 
you know, if, if you had anything on the, this history that you wanted to note, Matt, but I think it's, it's worth noting, the, you know, for people that, you know, this is unique, right? Not other, not many other industries have this kind of government oversight. And remember the history of the railroad in this country is a history of government and of capitalists, right? You know, when we talk about stuff that's happening in the 1800s, that's where fortunes were made. Um, it was a very powerful interest across the country, specifically in the West and the South, um, at, at times when there weren't a lot of other industries. So they basically were able to run and influence the government in most of part the, that part of the country. And it becomes really important when you study like Southern and Western history to realize how powerful the w- railroads um, are. But there has always been problems with the railroads, particularly profitability, right? Which is why there has been a lot of history of the federal government getting involved um, in the railroad industry, one, to try to regulate prices, um, to make sure that we can utilize the infrastructure that we're building, um, or in the early 20th century when they nationalized uh, the rail industry uh, during World War One, And um, throughout American history, there have been other examples of the U.S. government getting in on the side of bosses. And that's why we have this kind of oversight um, system now where Congress can basically force workers to accept uh, whatever deal to avert a strike. And remember, this is like this is really critical um, for for a few reasons. One, because of what it means for railroad w- workers, um, but two, what it means for your rights as a citizen of this supposedly democratic society. Right, your rights seem to end uh, whenever it becomes too thorny for capital, because the the kind of liberal understanding of like labor law, like labor politics in this country, is that like maybe we can have labor peace, like maybe bosses and workers can get along, we negotiate nice contracts when things get out of hand. Um, sometimes workers can go on strike and we'll protect that up to an extent, right? Where we think that it's fair. Um, but you see right here um, where, you know, railroad workers have a lot of power because uh, we still rely on them um, to make this system here function. You see the government basically coming in. The capitalists are saying, it's unfair, it's unfair, it's too dangerous for us. And the government saying, we got your back. Um, and they have that law historic, they, they have that kind of power historically and now Biden is using that in 2022 despite supposedly being the you know the most pro labor you know president in uh, in modern history yeah and i mean we'll we'll touch on this cuz there is some republican uh, squawking yeah. um that this is like an, an intrusion into the free market as it were like why is the state getting involved in this sort of dispute and like you said it's because of historical labor disputes regarding railroad and the state just being like we need to crush this brutally and uh, we have just given ourselves the right to do so um uh, because this is critically critically necessary and just to add to that, Matt, this shouldn't be the focus of tonight, but like, no, this is a great example, by the way, of the role of the state in capitalism, right? Despite what libertarians and, you know, uh, right-wingers try to argue that like capitalism sort of operates separately from the state. It's like, no, the state Never. operates in the long-term interests of, of capitalists, right? There's a difference, for example, between some of the kind of like pop, and I don't even like putting this on like Lenin understandings of yeah. like Lenin's argument that the government is just like the executive committee of the bourgeoisie. Um, no, they, it does operate on its own kind of logic. It in fact has a longer view of these kind of fights and their goal is to maintain power of capitalists. Even if that means running over this capitalist here, this industry here, they're looking for the the security in the system so that the rich in the society right. can continue to profit and break the backs of, of working people. Right. So, yeah. So that free market thing is all nonsense. And you're seeing actually like quite nakedly here, um, you know, that, that role. And it's not a coincidence that has to do with trains. Like you said, like this yeah. is, this goes back to like the uh, 19th century Gilded Age labor disputes. And it is like, it, 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 it's one of these things. 
there's basically two things you can, two words you can point to depending on what year a libertarian says, you know, free market capitalism. It's like if it was before uh, like 1864, for instance, you can say slavery. Mm. After that, you say trains. And mm. it, both of them basically disprove the whole myth uh, entirely because neither of that gets done without state uh, apparatus to uh, coerce uh, laborers uh, and uh, slaves and laborers. So let's break this down a little bit um, for folks before we talk about the politics, what this means for the left, et cetera. Um, this is um, President Joe Biden, um, a, a White House sta- statement that they put out yesterday. And it's a longer mm-hmm. statement where he's basically calling on Congress um, to use the powers that they have to b- break this, this strike, to force workers to accept a deal that 55 percent of the workers do not want to um, support. Um, and this just is like the language that Biden's using is truly infuriating. As a proud pro-labor president, I am reluctant to override the ratification procedures and the views of those who voted against the agreement. But in this case, where the economic impact of a shutdown would hurt millions of other working people and families, I believe Congress must use its powers to adopt this deal. Some in Congress want to modify the deal to either improve it for labor or for management. However, while intentioned, any changes would risk delay and debilitating shutdown. The agreement was reached in in, in good faith by both sides. Mm. Biden says, I share workers' concerns about the inability to take leave to recover from illness or care for a sick family member. And no one should have to choose between their job and their health or the health of their children. I've pressed legislation and proposals to advance the cause of paid leave in my two years in office and will continue to do so. Every other developed country in the world has such protections for its workers, except for the country that you're president of, uh, Joe Biden. Um, and he's going to fight uh, for that kind of paid sick leave the same way that he fought for student loan relief, the same way that he fought for, you know, increased funding after the COVID-19 pandemic, the same way that he fought for, you know, that 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 he's been saying that he's going to fight for all of these things. Biden, as you and I have been saying on this podcast, Matt, since the get go, is the press release president. And he does this every single time where he says, this is so horrible. I feel really bad about it. I understand the reasons everyone's uh, uh, upset about it. But here I am about to do the opposite thing. If Biden wanted uh, to stand up for these workers, right, if he if he wanted to not take the side of, of management, which he's accusing some other people of doing um, when he's literally doing it himself right now, um, Biden would be would be pushing on the railroad companies saying you continue to play um, slow on this game. You're continuing yeah. to to, to slow down the negotiation procedures. And you know why? Because those companies know that once it comes to this, the federal government was going to come in and save their asses. This has been a contract negotiation that has been going on for years. And when you hear people talking about like lump sum payments that workers are going to get, that's not a bonus. Those are unpaid wages that have to be repaid because of the fact that they weren't able to negotiate this contract in the first place. They've been playing the slow game because they realize that if it gets to this point, um, then Joe Biden and, 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 and all those folks are going to bail them out. They didn't care if it was Trump. They didn't care if it was Biden. They knew that the state would come running to their aid. And here's a, um, here's a, what one of the unions, um, the BMWED, um, said in response to Biden, which I think is a pretty good response here. It is not enough to share workers' concerns. A call to Congre- Congress to act immediately to pass legislation that adopts tentative agreements that exclude paid sick leave ignores, ignores the railroad's workers' concerns. It both denies railroad workers their right to strike while also denying them of the benefit they would likely otherwise ob- obtain if they were not denied their right to strike. 
Additionally, mm. passing legislation to adopt tentative agreements that excludes paid sick leaves for railroad workers will not address rail service issues. Rather, it will worsen supply chain issues and further sicken, infuriate, and disenfranchise railroad workers as they continue shouldering the burdens of the railroad's mismanagement. Indeed, the big corporation, the monopolies that control America, the robber baron railroads, have again profiteered from the problem they created and shifted the consequences of it onto the railroad workers, the customers, and the general public. This cannot continue. There must be change, um, which I think is an excellent response you know, to, to Biden's nonsense here. I have a Pelosi yeah. if we want to get into her, um, unless you wanted some to go a different direction. Well, why, why don't we get to Pelosi in a second? Just because I think cool. some people are coming into, I just want to like lay the stakes clear for people about what this negotiation is about. Cause I think there's a lot of confusion before we get to Pelosi. Yeah. She did the same thing. Um, <laughs> I can't do it all right here. This is a quick zoom for folks, just so you understand what the stakes of this fight are. We've seen a lot of consolidation in the railroad industry for decades, worsened declining service while they are making record profits. And remember this, this is not despite the fact that like, you know, some people complain about service issues on, on the railroad system. This is not a system of profitability for them. They are squeezing as much as they can, just like they are in the oil industry, just like they are in industries across this country. Right. And was that money used to improve service? No. Um, workers have been facing the brunt of the crisis, notably this lack of sick days. Um, remember, these were essential workers, right? And they're not very much being treated that way uh, today. Um, no sick days for them. The continued trimming of crews. You know, we now have these monster over mile long um, uh, trains that are going through towns, oftentimes carrying dangerous chemicals and things like that with a skeleton crew of like three people working it. Right. I mean, just like logistically, you can see how that is one, a safety disaster it's a service disaster. And it's also a human disaster on the fact that that these workers are being worked beyond the limits of like human capacity here. Right. These people have been, you know, asked to do superhuman work and they've shown up because they're good people and incredible folks. Um, But it's not sustainable. It's not all right. And um, the railroads are trying to make these crews even smaller. They're trying to make yep. them even smaller than they are today. So remember, these workers don't have sick days. They don't have sick days during a COVID-19 pandemic. Um, it's all unpaid. And even if you're not sick, man, the way that the, these, these schedules are set up, people are effectively on call because they'll get a call. Oh, you know, somebody, you know, is, you know, can't show up. So you have to show up in like an hour and a half, two hours. So even on your Sunday, yeah. right, whatever day it is, like you could get a call and be expected to show up in a couple hours. I mean, that means you can't spend time with your family. That means you don't get that moment where you can like let your guard down. I don't know. It's probably not the biggest thing in the world, but like have a couple beers and not have to worry about getting called onto a train. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like it's it's a huge imposition on your quality of life. Um, from from these um, Sean of the Antifada had a guest on uh, to talk about this, and they, they talk about like the scheduling problems that different jobs have, and it's like if yeah you're on call, and then you have to get a van to some fucking place that isn't the normal place because w- trains they're yeah. not on schedule. When schedules are fucked up, people getting to those trains have to fucked up. What if your shift doesn't co- uh, coincide with the train getting to where it needs to go? Then you're having to go catch a train or leave a train in mid station, like weird shit like this, and it's like. It's about power. This is this is the Democrats um, saying we're going to come in and give the basically corporate sociopaths that yeah. are are in charge of the rail industry 
uh, what they want with regards to these policies uh, with, and, and this is because they want to trim they just want to cut workers just psychotically. We need to be expanding this service. We should be massively investing. It should be, they should be in a rush to like hire more people. Instead we're talking about, well, can we fire people if they get sick? Can you mm. leave, please let us do that, Joe? And Joe's like, yeah, all right, <laughs> fine. So when you hear all this stuff, um, you know, there's all this talk about, um, you know, Salary increases. Remember, we're talking about salary increases during a time of uh, inflation. And two, I mean, we've covered this a few times in this program, and I, I don't have the video handy, but in one of the videos we played it with somebody, one of these railroad workers, you know, getting interviewed, and they were like, you know, at a certain point, it doesn't matter, <laughs> like how much money you give me if I can't live my life. You know, if I can't spend time with my family, if I can't enjoy anything, it's like, you know, what is what is yeah. this? And again, like, I don't want to make it sound like the, you know, like the, the salary increases are like, you know, even perfect or like, you know, acceptable. But it's just like there's all of this kind of narrative. It's like, oh, they're getting so much. They're getting so much of, of a wage increase. And it's just like but they're saying we need workers, quality of life. Yeah. And the workers know why they're fighting to retain this policy of no sick days. It's because they want to keep their boot on their neck and get rid of them if they if they want to. Like, mm. right. Like it, it's not. They know it's not because of money. It would be, it wouldn't, they can afford this policy. This is a massively affordable sick policy. But, and, and so it's like, and the AFL CIO um, said, I'll share this. Uh, Jonah Furman shared this. Um, Liz Schuler um, mm. tweeted this out. AFL CIO President Liz Schuler just held a call with state and local federation leadership. According to someone, here's what she had to say there's a lot of focus what's not in the agreement and not enough what is. Bottom line, it's a good contract. And like, how can you ask people to ignore that that's what they're they're keeping in their pocket over here? Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I think you're right in like, we'll get into that in a second. Like, I think some of the stuff we've seen from national, uh, some of the national labor leaders has been really disappointing. Um, and let, let's get into the politics in just one second. But there's just one thing I just want to remind people of. Um, when you're getting in arguments with because, you know, the the liberals out there are, are already running interference for Joe Biden. Right. And they're focusing on one threat. If the, the railroads shut down, what that would mean for you. Right. Which is classic kind of, you know, divide and conquer strategy. Um, and two, this kind of idea that like, well, eight out of 12 of the unions support this. When I voted for the deal, um, that means that there's just, you know, some there's just a few folks out there who are, you know, holding out. One, anti-solidaristic um, rhetoric from the get-go. But let's also not forget that just because, uh, you know, a union is saying that is not the same thing as like the mass of people. The four unions that are holding out mm-hmm. represent about 55% of the railroad workers in this country, right? So it still is when it comes rank and file, vast majority of people are saying we want better. And I think it's how really clear important to a, folks to that. That's a clear uh, example of how like the, the union sort of way unions are set up in this country is sort of used by the party, right? Like basically as a check on actual worker democracy, just to give a thing like, oh, look at it. it's Well, we got these partners are partnered with, without getting into like, well, what does rank and file feel about that? Mm-hmm. No, and I, how I much think... uh, and how much do each of those folks represent? Who gets listened to people in D.C.? Or people who are out running the trains, right? And that's sort of the, the conversation here. And just like these are just added facts too. I think a lot of people are like, well, Biden doesn't want the 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 train strike to like affect Christmas. Um, 
that's less of a problem at this point. Most retailers have gotten their shipments in. So like that's already sort of set um, at this mm. point. We're talking fertilizer. We're talking oil. We're talking coal. Um, those kind of heavy industry chemicals and things like that, that would be getting hit first. Not saying that there won't be effect on the retail side, but like, you know, just so we understand like what's where these fights are happening because they want to say, you know, the railroad workers are going to, you know, playing Grinch to your Christmas kind of thing. And I know our audience doesn't need to hear that, but like this is, if you go on CNN right now, yeah. um, actually, I mean, like I, I, I know we're jumping all over the place, Matt. I want to get to the Pelosi thing and the politics. Um, but let's see if I can grab this this video really quick because I think it's it's interesting to see um, how uh, how CNN has been reporting this uh, thus far. This is um, uh, compiled by uh, Steve Morris, who is uh, at the Recount um, and formerly uh, Media Matters for America. Um, let me put this up for you. This is CNN coverage so far. A rail strike is one of the most disruptive and expensive things that can happen to an economy. A rail shutdown or strike would disrupt supply chains. A strike means food prices could skyrocket. Many experts are saying would be an economic catastrophe. That could mean a big shortage and massive price hikes. Even gas prices could increase. And it also could cost the economy a billion dollars within the first week. That would cripple the economy. I'm not setting aside the concerns of your members. But are you and your members willing <laughs> to stop the rails, in effect, uh, and, and accept those costs to the U.S. economy? Do you believe a strike is worth it if it cripples the U.S. economy and costs up to $2 billion a day? More than $2 billion per day. Is it worth it? And on top of all of that, the holidays are right around the corner. So a little less than a month right before Christmas here. Especially right before the holidays. President Biden warning, if that happened... It would devastate the economy if we had a strike like that. So joining me now to talk about this and a lot more is Bank of America, Brian Morgan, <laughs> CEO of the, <laughs> in the world. Yeah, and you know, I'll, I'll admit I haven't combed through all of the CNN um, coverage so far, but I highly doubt that they're having on uh, CEOs of the rail companies asking them if their refusal to uh, give people paid sick leave um, <laughs> is worth it to shut down the U.S. economy. Is that how they cover interest rate uh, hikes? <laughs> yeah. It isn't kind of like, I mean, Jesus Christ. And to be a bit internationals, man. I mean, remember when we've, we've been covering the the labor disputes in the UK? It's the same game, right? Yeah. They're saying the same kind of things about them um, in, in in the UK. Oh, do you want to hurt all these people? Do you want to prevent people from getting to work? Do you want to pe- prevent people from getting medicine? No. I mean, that's what Mick Lynch was saying. He's like, no, we want a fair contract. And the people yeah. who are preventing us from getting that are the, the the bosses. And it's just like, this is a simple game here that they play every time. I remember we played that Lula clip a little while ago. It's like whenever workers go on strike, it's the workers who get you know beaten up and arrested by the police and never the bosses for not paying fair wages, right? This is a very clear example of the class society that we live in. The media plays a huge role in, mm-hmm. in, 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 in picking that up. But I mean, um, should we get well, to the yeah, politics it's, it, of it? Yeah. Well, just one final point is it, it, it's our, basically our entire society uh, and the two major parties look at voters not as workers, but as consumers and the mm. media as well. Like that, that's the way they like to emphasize it. And it's a big problem and it needs to be called out and people need to be, you know, uh, brought to their attention themselves, not as people who get cheap shit in the uh, wintertime after Thanksgiving, um, it's people who uh, aren't are being exploited for their labor time, and like 
Look, Matt, I mean, like, you and I, I don't think have, have had any illusions about Joe Biden. In fact, we were getting a lot of shit from people saying we were too hard on him when he first got elected president. Remember that? Um, yeah. <laughs> and um, when when well, all I mean, these people were writing fawning Biden, like, Biden's going to be the next FDR. Biden's going to be the reluctant FDR. Was the To be fair, was the kind of argument you're getting from folks. Biden's going to be a reluctant FDR that, like, he might not want to bend this guy, but social forces are pushing him in a certain direction. And men are like, yeah, it's a little early to start saying stuff like that. What we're seeing right now, I think, is a really great encapsulation, a fortunate one, but a really great encapsulation of what the, the Democratic Party is and what it represents. Um, capital, but also, and you see it in the CNN stuff, you see it in the way Biden's talking, you see it in the Pelosi thing we're about to put up, upper middle class suburban voters, which has been their strategy. That's how they wanted to win Georgia. That's how they ludicrous, ludicrously thought they were going to win here in Texas, was by picking up wealthy suburban voters. And you see, moving away from a base of railroad workers um, in a historic labor dispute, potentially a historic strike, they're taking the side of, of bosses and they're selling that not even to the workers anymore. I mean, I think most people are smart enough to get what Biden is doing, right? He can say he hears their concerns, but I think most people recognize that's bullshit. He's selling it um, to suburban voters, upper middle class suburban voters, so that they don't feel bad about uh, wanting labor to be crushed in order um, of them not having to potentially pay higher prices because the capitals don't want to pay workers uh, their fair share or give them paid sick leave. Yeah. And I mean, really sick to say like, oh, we're worried about the other workers actually who are going to lose their jobs because these workers decided like now's the time they need sick days. The time of, you know, where there's massive respiratory viruses going around. I mean, do you know, I don't want to get too far off track, but like half the people I know personally in my life, it feels like have some sort of respiratory uh, ailment in the mm. past like week or so. Um, here's the Pelosi uh, thing if you want to uh, Look at this quick. Uh, David Dayan shared this. <clears throat> As we consider congressional action, we must recognize that railroads have been selling out to Wall Street to boost their bottom lines, make obscene mm-hmm. profits. Well, was her, Mrs. Insider Trading talking about Wall Street is, you know, <laughs> a bit much. Um, uh, and more from railroad, uh, making obscene profits while demanding more and more from railroad workers. So we know, like, obscene profits. We are reluctant to bypass the standard ratification process for the tentative agreement, but we must act to prevent a catastrophic nationwide rail strike, which would grind our economy to a halt. Our nation must, our nation would suffer more than, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. I don't want to read all this. Um, this week, the House will take up a bill adopting the tentative agreement with no poison pills or changes to the negotiated term. Now, what she's saying there is, uh, when she's saying poison pills, is this. Uh, what Congress could do is say, Oh, we're getting involved. Workers, you got it. You got it. Yeah. You got your sick days. And you got everything else too. Congratulations. We're the government. We can do this shit. That's state power. You're welcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what they could do. And that's what they should do if they're going to get involved, if they're not just going to wait it out. And uh, and so like this idea where it's like there's they've been exploiting workers for record profits. Well, let's 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 see that. Let's like let we can give them, we can afford to give them sick days. You know what? Let's mm-hmm. just one extra, because it's Christmas. That's what that's what uh, uh, actual worker party could do. And you know we're not close to there yet. I mean, and I don't know where you want to transition now. There's some interesting rumblings on both sides of the aisle, uh, and we can judge, uh, you know, how sincerely we want well, to. Well, just, just really quick, there's another thing they could do. You know, and yeah. Joe Biden could go out right now and say. The fat cats in charge of the train system are right. ruining the system. 
Um, they're they're providing worse service. They're hurting workers, and we're taking this under um, federal control. We're nationalizing the railroad go. industry. Right. You could do that, or even if you don't want to follow through, you could say, "Hey, y'all think that you can play games and, and sort of sit out a strike with because we're going to come and help you? We're going to say you negotiate with them, or we nationalize." Right. Boom. We say you take care of this or we're going to make we're going to take, you know, sweeping action to put these under government control. There's a climate crisis. We need to have better, stronger train system. This could be the first step in, you know, building out those kind of lines to create. A, you know, it's not that I genuinely believe that Joe Biden would do this, but it's just like these are the kind of things that I think are important for people to remember that these are deliberate choices that are being made. Mm-hmm. And Biden could play hardball the other direction very easily. And I think could sell that too to folks. Um, who is the, the coalition of people in the United States of America who loves the 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 train CEOs? <laughs> you know what I mean? The people who get worked about that are people who have financial interest yeah. in the in the profit system of 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 privatized rail. You know, it's and that's such a good point. I mean, like if you can't run a train system without fucking sick time. You don't get to run that shit anymore. You failed. I'm sorry. It, you know, mm-hmm. this idea, like, you failed. It's not yours anymore. And uh, we're going to, like, reinvest those profits into expanding this shit. Because, frankly, th- our rail system is a sign of shoddy priorities in this country. Like, that we mm-hmm. haven't been massively investing in it. That it's, like, it's it's a disgrace. And, like, it, unless Joe's saved by Congress and they say, actually, we are going to include these poison pills which is ironic thing to call like sick day uh, policy um uh like that it's like i mean you know the what the aircraft carriers were to reagan except reagan was like yeah i love that shit Mm. biden is like i'm the train guy well i mean let's let's get into the the politics a little bit matt i mean we got a um I mean, just setting the stage very briefly. So what's happened is tomorrow they're going to have a vote. I'll be back on Thursday for a Grissom stream. So um, we're going to talk about where the where things are set now versus, I think, speculating because we'll have time to talk about them on Thursday. Um, but uh, there'll, there'll be a vote in the House. We'll see what happens there. I think that it is undoubtedly, and we, we should talk more theoretically about this in a second, Matt, but let's just set the, the, the thing. Undoubtedly, Every single person who calls himself a progressive should vote against forcing workers to take this bad deal. Um, but if I, if I were to be to guess, I think it might squeak and, and get through the House. The Senate's where it gets interesting because it's tight there, as people know. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of games that like a, a person like Bernie Sanders could do to sort of gum up this process and remember that if they don't get this passed through Congress, even if they do eventually, you could still see a rail strike. Um, I think December 9th is the is the deadline. Um, so, you know, you could see, even if it looks like the the politics of it are shaping up one way, you know, one sole guy, Bernie Sanders, could do a lot um, in, in, in trying to make more space um, for workers. But so that's sort of like what's in front of us over the next two days on the political thing. But let's talk about like the actual politics of it and, and, and the players, because there have been some sort of interesting uh, dynamics, right, Matt? Uh, yeah. Do you want to start on the right or the left? <laughs> uh, I mean, do you want to start on, let's start on the left and get to the right? Okay. Let's start so, on the house I mean, and get to the Senate. How about that? Yeah, so I mean, decent signs for out of the house. Uh, I mean, we'll start with AOC since she gets the she's the lightning rod for the attention. Um, she tweeted out a quote tweet of this um, Biden um, 
sellout tweet saying railroad workers grind themselves to the bone for this country as their labor produces billions for Wall Street to demand the basic dignity of paid sick days. I stand with them. If Congress intervenes, they should have workers' backs to secure their demands uh, in legislation. Um, and uh, uh, the yeah. BMW, yeah, I'm not, I'm not quite sure on all these actors. The Brotherhood BMW, of Maintenance of Way Employees Division. Um, you know, throughout solid there. Um, and, you know, I saw a lot. Um, we have Jamal Bowman, um, Ayanna Presley tweeted about sick days a couple late. minutes before we Wait, went yeah. on air late. Uh, um, and Corey uh, Bush, Ilhan, Corey Bush. The, the, right. the, the squad has all sort of come out so far and said, you know, we're varying degrees of, of severity, but I would say that particularly the ones who are more DSA aligned have been very strong um, in, in in their statements so far about saying like, I mean, the AOC quote is not just saying, I think this is like the only thing we should be doing um, is putting our, our, you know, our thumb on the scale in, in, in favor of working people. Right. And, yeah. you know, that matters because, you know, while I think that we're far way away from where we need to be both like in size and also with like the the folks who are representing this section of the left, like this is when it 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 does really matter. And I think there was a whole group of people who were just expecting them to roll over, which I think, you know, I don't know. We say this every time we fucking talk about these people, Matt. We have plenty of criticisms of these folks. We've dedicated shows to criticizing um, them and and and, and pointing things out where they, they think they missed up. But I also think it's really oh, yeah. important to to ground that in reality because there's a whole section, particularly of online left media, that doesn't operate. Um, from any kind of sense of, of of reality when it comes to criticizing these figures, which doesn't make us stronger um, and also is always sort of meant not to motivate people to do politics, to demobilize people to do politics. And I think that that's a really dangerous thing. But we could talk about that more when we do grand picture yeah. stuff. But. but I mean, I mean, that's the thing is that's my cynical reason for, me, for, for my perspective. You know, people always be like, you say vote for Democrats. Like, well, yeah, I mean, there's two reasons. One, I think. You know, we have this tweet from uh, Jordan Zakarian uh, here, and I think it, it kind of puts the state of play pretty accurately. Democrats appointed a solid NRB but didn't fund it while on full control yeah. government. Now, the Republicans wouldn't have appointed a solid NRB, and they wouldn't have funded it. So it's like there's a minor difference there. That said, I think it's fully uh, valid to say there's not a whole lot of difference as, on certain critical issues of like coercing labor in this country. And guess mm-hmm. what? I still think it's better to have Democrats uh, in power than as the party of opposition for that case, because I think the the um, example is much more stark. Right now, if Trump was in office, I don't think he'd be uh, like the way Trump says the minimum wage is too high and it's making us embarrassing on the world scale. I don't think he is going to uh, show up for workers, but uh, and so he'd say he'd do the same thing. Then Democrats are saying, oh, we hate what he's doing. Please fundraise for us. Right. Like, I, I just don't think it's that interesting. I mean, when the People's Party has candidates that have a statement on here, uh, then maybe we'll cover it. Um, like, as far as this sort of stuff goes, like the government is in charge of this shit. Like, I, I don't know what to tell you, right? Like this is Congress um, because of, and, and so it's, and, and we're, we're going to see this test. I don't know. I have no idea how to predict how the politics of this play out. I, I'm not an expert on that, um, but I do know, I'm glad to see, you know, we, we were looking to see who was uh, messaging on it. And uh, you said, Kesar uh, said something too. We worried Presley didn't say anything. Didn't see nothing from Jayapal yet. Yeah. Maybe she got in late too. Um, uh, but uh, I mean, it's just like, yes, we know that these are both capitalist parties that and, and varying degrees of, you know, what they'll put up with uh, coercing folks. But yeah, 
I, there's nothing more important. Look, I, I mean, just putting my cards on the table. Like, I, I'm not one of these people who gets worked up um, about about voting on either side. And I'm not saying this to try to be right. like both sides. It's just like, I find that to not be where politics is being played in this country. Right. And people yes. get really worked up on like trying to enforce everybody shows up and, and gets in line for Democrats, which like, you know, whatever, I think that the arguments to sort of get it in a, in a certain direction makes sense to me, but it doesn't get me like, Oh, this is the most important thing that I'm doing right now. This is the most important thing for other people. Someone tells me they haven't voted in a long time. I don't, I don't tell them, you know, two things twice you know what i mean that's fine but like going to say like actually you shouldn't be voting either is just like a fucking dumb waste of time i totally agree and that's what i'm saying is like then then there's this other side that gets really worked up and they're like the reason we're in this crisis is because people keep on you know voting for either republicans or democrats and they need a break from the duopoly it's like no the reason that uh that we're in this crisis is because the working class is like incredibly disorganized and has been for you know over 100 years and that's been a long-term historical process so what matters more is seeing this kind of stuff seeing these kind of fights supporting them building that kind of consciousness and you know what helps us build that kind of politics matt Hmm. is when members of the bmwed see that the people who have their back in this fight are people like aoc people like bernie sanders people like cory bush People like Ilhan Omar and not the Bidens, not these kind of centrist Dems, right? That matters a lot more um, to, to our yeah. politics in, in the long run. Yes, this is like this is what you want to see, I mean, regardless of what you think of the prospects of, you know, the Democratic Party becoming a workers party is like f- the people who are there for it, um, you know, finally uh, differentiating themselves a little bit. And so here's Bernie. Uh, I agree with Sean O'Brien, president of 1.2 million member strong Teamsters, who says members of Congress have an opportunity to fight for their constituents by making sure rail workers get paid sick days. Any politician who don't side with workers need to go on record that they voted against <laughs> workers. And I mean, that's funny because that's directly a shot at Pelosi and Biden trying to have it both ways. But like, I'm pro labor, but, you know, fuck labor on this. And also, like, let's just be very clear about the politics here, about what Bernie Sanders is, is saying. This is from... Um, CNN uh, reporter, um, Bernie Sanders wants to vote on the amendment on paid sick leave for rail workers, or he won't agree to a quick vote on passage. It's my intention. I can't do a good Bernie, but it's my intention to block consideration of the rail legislation until a roll call vote occurs on guaranteeing seven paid sick days uh, to rail workers in America. And if I do um, recall correctly, um, that's like, a you know, on the other side of like what people are demanding, I think there's a four day demand um, and a seven day demand. So Bernie Sanders isn't sort of meeting in the middle from the get go. He's saying seven or I'm not going to let this shit go through the, the Senate. Right. That does matter. It really matters. And I think it's important for us to like. I totally agree um, with with Michael, with a lot of my friends, uh, with, with Michael Brooks, a lot of my friends is that when this election was going on between Trump and Bernie, uh, between uh, Trump and, and, and uh, Biden, um, you know, the question is like, what's next for love? It's like, well, it's, it's labor. It's just like, that's it. That's always where it has to be. That's always what the fight needs to be. That's always what the focus needs to be. We're socialists for fuck's sake, right? Like, I don't give a shit about, you know, in, internal party politics of the Democratic Party. We know who they are. We know what they represent. What matters is how can we build the power of working people in the United States of America so that we can build a better future? You see these kind of fights. You see these kind of things. You need to be with them. And it's good to have folks who have power and ability to influence things like Bernie Sanders, like an AOC, you know, with all the criticism that we can make of them, um, pushing the, the ball forward on that, because 
victories only get more victories in the long run. And, you know, these, that's why these fights are really damn important. That's why we're dedicating, you know, most of the show to covering this today. Um, so let's, let you, before we get like zoom out, I don't know, like, cause I know I still have more shit I want to say on the strategic level and I don't want to like bury all the kind of political analysis. Cause the interesting thing is that there seem to be some cracks on the Republican side too. Um, this is the first one I saw. Marco Rubio, the railways and workers should go back and negotiate a deal that the workers, not just the union bosses, will accept. I mean, he does get a, 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 a slap at the union boss, but in this case, yeah, the union bosses are the ones fucking up. Uh, but if Congress is forced to do it, I will not vote to impose a deal that doesn't have the support of the rail workers. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, and who knows you know. where this is? <laughs> Take I think it. here, well, Take it, but also like this is also the own goal that we're seeing from Biden right now is he's right. giving the Republicans the ability to say they stand for working people. Marco Rubio, we've seen throughout his congressional career, is not somebody who is willingly saying he likes, especially lately, he's been liking to play this kind of game. Um, you know, but he'll do it in a way like we're going to privatize Social Security for working people, <laughs> you know, shit like that. Um, but this kind of thing only adds to the the story um, that, uh, you know, you know, Republicans are now becoming uh, the party of, of the working class. And in, in a close Senate, these things could really um, end up mattering. Um, you know, if Bernie is out here trying to sh- slow this down, a Rubio thing would make a difference if he actually is, is doing this for more reasons than just to tweet about it. If he actually is voting against this deal, um, this is all reporting it. I don't know if I've gotten direct, um, you know, statements that I can verify um, but we do have some also other interesting kind of developments on the right wing. I was saying to Matt, um, you know, some of the nastiest people in the U.S. Senate right now are representatives from, uh, you know, my home state of Texas. Um, both Cruz and Cornyn have also said that they don't support um, forcing this deal on workers, which, again, we can doubt their their you know intentions behind this. They just want to score a goal on on uh just right. watch soccer today i'm just doing soccer <laughs> but like uh, you know they just want to kick <laughs> yeah. you know they they just want to take advantage of, of of biden's weakness but again if that prevents these workers from being forced to take a deal by the united states congress um i'm all here for it um i think you know be careful i don't think right kind of glowing off ads about these folks and acting like they're somehow now which is what they're going to try to do if you know they're successful on this um yeah i mean like to just to put like my cards on the table in another way like i am skeptical that either party is hospitable to like becoming any kind of a workers party in this country but the democrats are the one that labor (laughs) is behind and so like i think that's the one that might have the actual opening which is why i'm exceedingly skeptical of any attempts by the right uh republicans to do that we do have somebody in our audience kowalski from nebraska who has attempted to run as a republican uh with like good politics uh you know you can uh, he's got his own youtube channel now you can maybe go ask him about how that's gone not terribly well though to summarize um nonetheless if this sort of like, you know, stick a finger in the eye of Democrats play by Rubio and Cruz uh, allows the strike to go on without Congress forcing them uh, not to, mm-hmm. uh, I would welcome that. And I would like to see them on the picket line uh, joining yeah. the striking workers, um, you know, with presumably the squad and other folks. And maybe that could finally be the uh, realignment we get. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not super uh, no. optimistic about the happening, but I'd love to be wrong. No, I mean, but it's like, you know, at the end of the day, Cornyn, Rubio, Cruz, all those folks, it's cynical. But the yeah. point is, like, can you take advantage of cynicism to 
you know, move the ball forward for workers, do it. This is like, yeah. there's, there's just like, there's no question about that in my mind. Um, I do think it's really important. And this is, this is why it's like, this is why the democratic party is just so endlessly frustrating right now is that it's, it's become very clear um, that they're the, the support within even representatives in Congress, right? These are some of the wealthiest people in the country. Remember that about Congress, right? This is not a representative body. These are some of the wealthiest people in the country. It seems like there's breaking of, 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 of ranks. I don't, I don't know the the math in the house yet um, yeah. to, to be able to say confidently which way I think that that vote will go. I'm assuming um, that Pelosi will be able to whip most of the Democrats in because that's what they are. Um, the Republicans certainly don't want to support stronger unions in this country. So maybe you'll get a couple, you know, eccentric Republicans um, voting against or abstaining. Um, but I think that those numbers sort of seem like it will go through the House. In the Senate, where the margins are, are closer, also, all you really have to do is just run out the clock, right? You know, it's, uh, <laughs> you know, you got you got to get one first down, right? And then you could take a knee, basically, kind of thing um, for, for them. So take whatever because you, you can I mean, get. It's interesting if, if people are going to want to vote in this, this Bernie forced the vote on the sick days thing. I'm not, how, how many people are going to want to go on record saying, get your asses to work, no sick days? I. Uh, yeah, and like these, like uh, when it comes to sympathetic workers, maybe for for good and bad reasons, right? You see how horrible, obviously, the right wing has been about showing solidarity for Starbucks workers. You even seen on the left um, having a lot of difficulty. Some people with being able to show solidarity with it. I mean, this is just like you know the classic cartoon. You know what I mean? <laughs> like this is like the working class kind of people and like showing up against those folks. I think should be a political death sentence if we had a reasonable country. Um, and yeah, I do think that there might be some hesitation. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll be watching closely and, um, you know, and, 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 and paying attention to this. I mean, this, I was, I've been worried about this, um, you know, since, since Biden, um, you know, sort of made it clear that he was going to push Congress to, to take action on it. Um, but I will say I've been a little heartened over the past few hours to see that like this could actually end up blowing up in their face, um, which would, yeah. I think would be a very important lesson for them. I want to share this clip of uh, Mary Peltol, uh, first Alaska Native in Congress. She was on Meet the Press. And uh, this, I like to see this from new members of Congress. Are you planning to support this? How are you planning to vote? I'm going to be in a lot of communication with union leaders, especially union leaders in Alaska. This, of course, is a very grave concern throughout the nation, including Alaska, with freight being so important to all Americans. But I, I am very concerned about the fact that the negotiation concluded without really getting where we needed to be in terms of sick leave. I think not having sick leave and not being able to go to a doctor or get care is an untenable situation, especially when we have the flu coming up. We've got an RSV you know, outbreak, and we're, we still have effects of COVID as well. So I just don't think it's right or fair to expect workers to go to work sick as a dog without being able to have a few days to, to recover. Congresswoman, it sounds like you are a no vote at this point. That would be the case at this point, yes. <laughs> okay, and, and what would get you to yes? And, and how do you respond to the president and, and very... I mean, can you just imagine like Noam Chomsky ripping out his hair at the way like the like it's like it's her job to like discipline this congressperson. Mm -hmm. Look, this could cause catastrophic damage to the nation's economy. 
Well, I think it could also cause a catastrophic damage to the nation's economy if we're expecting a whole sector of employees to go to work sick. And repeatedly, I think um, making sure that um, freight workers have um, their immunity built up and can can be a healthy workforce, I think that that's critical to the economy as well. Okay, so that sick paid sick days has to be addressed before you are willing to get on board with this legislation. Yes, and it's not just paid sick days. It's the ability to have a sick day without the threat of being fired. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... Also, remember this one. Why should workers... Why should workers ignore that? Like, it's clearly that, oh, you want to keep that policy where you can just fucking fire me if I'm sick? Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> no, motherfucker. No, exactly. I mean, so this is this is a, a huge fight. It's a historic fight. Um, we're going to be covering this this more. I mean, like, is there any kind of end note things we want to add? I know, like, you and I are both heated about this. There's a lot here. I think. Uh, shout out Danny DeVito. Uh, I've oh, just yes, started please. working my way through. Uh, I just started working my way through Always Sunny. I I, I used to catch episodes here and there, but never really watched it. It's so um, good. Longitudinally. And uh, it's very good. I just got the second <laughs> season where Danny DeVito uh, uh, comes in. But Danny says, um, uh, no, Joe, you're supposed to help the railroad workers. Not You got it backwards. A handful of sick days. Come on. Workers of the world unite. <laughs> yeah, no. Danny's, Danny's a comrade. I love, I love seeing great. that. Well, if I were just to make a quick close, Matt, I mean, I, I, I just I have to say that, like, there's a lot of fights that happen on on the left, and some of them are more, you know, with more merit than others. Um, there's a lot of questions about what's in politicians' hearts. People who watch the show know that, like, you know, we need to start thinking more structurally and, and less individually about these things um, if we're serious about winning. Um because the reality is that the state is, 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 is a monster and you get in there and, uh, you know, you can come in there with certain intentions and, and, and power goes one direction. And our job is to try to flip that. That's the, that's the big fight. It's hard. Sorry. It's hard. But that's what we have to, to you know, to defeat. That's it. That's just that's that's it when it comes to politics. And when you see a fight like this, right, one that is so clear, it's capital versus labor and the state is getting involved in favor of capital. This is a very clear defining moment in, in the class war in this country that's been going on our entire lives and the vast majority of this country's history. It matters um, to be able to find ways to find the cleavages, to find the movements, to find the opportunities that are there to ensure that working people can win. Um, and this is why you can't become cynical about politics because, you know, I have that side of me that's very cynical about it. nothing's going to change. These people are all corrupt. And even if they have good hearts, like the system will, will, will spit them out, you know, chew them up and spit them out. Right. doesn't mean that that's necessarily like a bad analysis, but you have to say, okay, well, how do we get out of that? Because the other option really for a lot of people has been tuning out and just being the ones who are right as the world burns. Right. The world is burning. It's because of our sins, because we failed, right? And it's like, fine, you're right, man. What, what does like? But what does that do? Because for for, yeah. for the vast majority of us, we want to have a better world where people aren't having to choose uh, between their job or, or their health, aren't having to choose um, between showing up every day um, and giving their life to somebody else's uh, benefit, right? Talking about capitalist bosses um, or 
living in abject poverty in, in, in the society. These fights matter for us. They matter for our neighbors. They matter for our communities. And we have to find ways uh, to win. And you have to be really careful about being able to have the right kind of structural analysis about the so kind of like class makeup, class interests of these political parties. Um, and also not letting that be something that becomes debilitating or becomes an excuse to sort of sit out of politics. Because for all the people um, who make a lot of hay about like AOC, I've seen a lot of silence on this fight. I've seen a lot of silence. I don't want to do flame wars on this because it's not what's interesting to me. If you look at some of the people who are really worked up about Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders as being silenced in the movement and see what their coverage has been on the rail strikes. It will be very different from and ours. I would just say like if there that is shouldn't any. be a surprise. Like that shouldn't yeah. be a surprise that uh, – yeah, um, folks wouldn't be serious about that stuff. Um, I think it shouldn't be a surprise that AOC would. I, I'm not surprised that AOC yeah. <laughs> said, came out in support of the rail workers. And if you are, you're probably getting uh, bullshit fed to you um, by overly cynical people who are monetizing cynicism. And I'm sorry, that is a good strategy. Uh, I I should probably bet on them uh, against Minnesota sports teams. Uh, every <laughs> yeah. like, and I'll come out really ahead. But that's not going to make the Vikings or the Timberwolves or the Twins any better. Yeah, uh, and you know, um, yeah, so anyway, no, that's right. We have some no. good news though. I mean, are yeah. you ready to uh, move to Sam? Yeah, I think we should move to Sam. Just remind folks, wait, before we move to, to Sam, let's do a quick pitch. Um, I'm gonna pull up the Sam thing. Could you pull up our big event coming up in the, the in, in, yeah. in your neck of the woods? Uh, we're gonna be coming to visit some of y'all folks. Uh, we're gonna be live in New York City at was it the cutting room? Um, where I believe Pete Seeger um, was a regular there, uh, which was pretty cool to to find out on what January. Confess, I've not I've not been to the cutting room. Um, Me I, I'm not even sure that I've I've heard of it, um, but I did scope it out, and it looks really exciting. It's gonna um, be a it's gonna be a big. I think it's even a bigger venue than the one we did in L.A. Um, we're gonna be going um, to the cutting room in uh, New York city, January 22nd, we'll be joined by our friends, Jason miles, Ben Burgess, we'll do another mashup, g- give them an argument. This is revolution left reckoning. And we're going to be joined by um, Sam Cedar, Baskar, Baskar, Sankara. <laughs> I almost did a Michael there, Baskar, Sankara and uh, Emma Vigland. Um, it's going to be a hell of a lot of fun. I'm getting really excited to see everybody. The LA show was so much fun. Um, we've had great times every time we've done a live show in New York city. So Put that on your calendars. You can grab tickets on the Cutting Room uh, website. I'll put a link in the show notes um, right now. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's going to be it's going to be a lot of fun. So keep your eye out for that. Yeah, I'm excited. I mean, uh, it's fun to do. Uh, I'm excited to do a show in the neck of the woods. Uh, in my neck of the woods, well, it's easy for you. you. Just take a people train come home. to me <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, but people um, have said. I mean, there's a couple. You know, hey. Uh, we may try to do some uh, uh, more live shows. If this does uh, 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 well or better than the uh, the one in LA, you'll see us in some of these places. So, no, totally. So you know, everybody come out. I think it's gonna be um, it's gonna be. I mean, it's gonna be a lot of fun. I, I also like I like the the lineup here. I mean, it's all people we we know really well. Um, I've been friends with for a long time. I'm just putting this in the chat. It'll be in the show note as well. We definitely want to do a Texas one. The real quick. I mean, for Texas people. Um, I don't know if I want to have a formal poll, but just you know, let us know. I'm trying to decide if we want to do it here in Austin or in Houston or Dallas. Um, obviously, mm. it'd be fun to do it in Austin, but 
Um, I wouldn't mind driving a couple hours to go visit some of our friends. And plus, they're a little bit bigger cities, so it might help out. Like if we do it in Houston, you can come from New Orleans, things like that. But um, right. we'll, uh, we'll we'll see. We definitely want to do a Texas one. I definitely want to do some of the South. I know Midwest is coming. P&W, um, if it's Seattle or Portland, we're going to figure that out. But anyways, to get there, we got to get past this thing. So if you're in the area, be sure to you know grab a ticket and come by. And uh, we'll have a meet and greet so you can hang out with everybody. Um, what? Yeah, come to the meet and greet. I, I love those um, uh, awful lot. Like it's it's really great talking to people. I um, you know I don't know if we have the same time uh, limit here, but you know I I maybe open doors a little bit longer. Yeah, <laughs> um, so. talk to folks. And then maybe I mean is that before the Super Bowl? I hope that's not the Super Bowl, Lord. Um, but <laughs> the Super Bowl's <laughs> in February, right? In February, um, yeah. Yeah, okay. So y'all can wear your your uh, Dak Prescott jersey as the the Cowboys are gearing up. Uh, for their Super Bowl championship that year, trigger Emma a little bit. It'll be a lot of fun. Um, so be sure, to, be sure to come by, grab your tickets. They just went up now, so get them now because uh, they they do tend to sell quick. And um, yeah, we got a uh, we got Goodman coming. Sorry, no, I was going to say yeah. Our New York shows. I mean, people the Northeast is uh, turns out very populated, so these shows go uh, quick. So if you know you're coming, uh, you want to squat on a ticket. Hell yeah. Um. Well, we got Sam Goodman. Um, he's going to be talking to us about uh, COP27. Some surprising news out of that. They do amazing uh, work at La Ruta del Crilima. Um, and uh, after that, Matt and I will be going over the post game. Get access to, to that at patreon.com slash left reckoning. We've got a lot to, to chat about. We got a reading series of the Babylon Bee, uh, one of my favorite publications. Out of Twitter jail. So basically, I mean, the Alexander Solzhenitsyn of comedy of our time. Um, they're out of Twitter jail and they're able to be uh, share their articles again. And they did a doozy uh, on Stephen King. And we'll be reading that for, I mean, psychological pathologies, uh, you know, ideological hangups, different things like that. Yeah. Um, so that'll be a lot of fun. Get sign up and be a patron. It's, what is it? Given Tuesday, y'all. Show some love. Um, but yeah, we'll get to Sam and we'll jump over the post game uh, right after that. So see you there. Peace. Welcome, folks. Welcome. I'm Matt Leck. With me, as always, David Griscom. Hello, David. Hey, man. How are you? I'm doing really well. Excited to be talking to our friend Sam Goodman. Sam is with La Ruta da Clima, and he, cl- I always uh, stumble. You got it right. Uh, and <laughs> and he is back from Egypt, where he was at COP27. And I want to show this picture that he sent us of Sam. In his left reckoning hat, uh, representing uh, a left reckoning at this conference, which you know we previewed it with Bronwyn Meta uh, a month or so ago, and I'll be honest, I wasn't expecting much, but it seems like there was uh, some po- some actual important things accomplished. Let's go back and sort of set the table. What is COP, and you know what were you guys? Uh, what did you go there for this year? Sure. So. Uh, COP uh, stands for Conference of the Parties. It's um, uh, within the context of the UN climate negotiations. It's the annual negotiations that occur usually um, November of each year. It's a two-week process uh, where 
they try to establish the framework for uh, parties to um, um, meet meet climate goals and to um, build climate ambition together. So this is where the Paris Agreement came from, and at COP twenty one. Uh, the Glasgow Climate Pact last year, COP26, and this year was built as the implementation COP. So building on some of the breakthroughs of last year. Uh, so as you mentioned, it wasn't just you. I think everyone was didn't have that high of expectations. They're pretty bleak uh, coming mm-hmm. into this year's conference. You know, it was facing pretty significant geopolitical headwinds, the war in Ukraine, inflation, um, the intercessional negotiations, offered little hope, I think, in terms of those who, you know, especially in terms of the areas that we follow, um, the issue of loss and damage is, you know, one of the core issues that La Ruta follows. Um, and just, so just to jump in there, can you, uh, uh, for the folks who are unfamiliar who didn't see our coverage last year, what is a loss of damage as it pertains to climate change? Sure. When you talk about climate action, you refer to two, tip- two primary pillars, uh, mitigation, reducing uh, greenhouse gas emissions that adapt, adapting uh, adapting to uh, the effects of climate change. But we really think there should be a third pillar of climate action, that's loss and damage. So when you're unable to adapt, you have you know, irreversible losses and damages, and that's what we work on. And this has been an area of climate negotiations that have um, where progress has been underwhelming to say the least. So calls for loss and damage date back to a 1991 submission by Vanuatu on behalf of the uh, Association of Small Island States calling for some sort of financial mechanism. And this has gotten a lot of resistance from the global north. Um, you know, countries not wanting to be held uh, liable or, or provide mm-hmm. compensation for loss and damage. So it's been sort of a 30 year deadlock it did get its own article in the Paris Agreement. Article A is dedicated specifically to the issue of loss and damage. Um, but this is really beginning to uh, build up steam this year. We see countries around the world, you know, look at Pakistan this year, elsewhere in the global south and the global north as well. You see massive, you know, economic and non-economic losses. <clears throat> so this year, uh, there's a lot of, you know, pressure to 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 move on this. But... Uh, there has not been a financial mechanism in place to provide some sort of compensation for loss and damage. And this has been really a sore spot, particularly among nations in the global south and especially for small island states on the front lines of climate change who have um, you know, felt like their issues have been long ignored. So this was a major issue coming into the conference and coming out of the intercessionals and bond this year. And in fact, you know, you can you talk about how uh, the fund that was uh, created um, for loss and damage and how that sort of uh, developed over the course of the conference? Yeah, I think the whole situation was really wild. And I think very few people anticipate the outcome that happened. So I think when the talks began, um, a lot of countries in the global north were looking at maybe a a decision uh, with by COP29. So, you know, for the next two years, there could be a decision on, you know, how to establish funding arrangements for loss and damage. This was met with pretty fierce resistance from countries in the global south a lot. And there was a lot of, you know, tensions in terms of how the COVID pandemic played out and that creating more of a divide between wealthy global north nations and, you know, frontline communities in the global south. So there's a lot of resistance and 
basically the group of 77 nations, which I think is 135 developing nations, uh, came out of the gate and they said, we want a decision now. Mm -hmm. And some of the subgroups within the G77, some um, you know, the ILAC negotiating block, which is Colombia, Chile, Honduras, which all have new um, left-leaning administrations along with, you know, Costa Rica and, um, you know, a few other countries in Latin America, the Alliance of Small Island States, and um, least developed countries were really pushing for a fund to be established at COP27. And... Um, we started to see some cracks, maybe some weakening in the within the European Union, who has been historically one of the key blockers along with the United States. And basically, at the end of the second week, the you know the U.S. position fell, and the um, a decision was made to establish funding arrangements for uh, loss and damage fund. Uh, this was you know this is pretty vague text. It'll be hashed out in the you know, in the coming months in COP28, but it was, you know, pretty significant win for countries in the global south that have been fighting for 30 years and they finally got this dramatic win. I mean, we have to see how this will all be hashed out. The text is pretty vague. It could be something mm -hmm. great. It could be pretty weak. Um, and so we'll have to keep fighting, but this was a historic breakthrough and a great first step um, and really one of the the major victories, if not the biggest victory to come out of COP27. I mean, um, ju just to make sure that everybody's, you know, following all, all the way, like, w what kind of mechanisms are we, you know, potentially talking about uh, for, for dealing with loss and damage, right? Um, is, is this just general financing? Or is this things that would sort of be paid out over time, if certain kind of conditions are met? I mean, could you break that down a little bit for, for the listeners? Yeah, I mean, I think that really needs to be... Um, mm -hmm. For hashtag, I mean, if you look at what was agreed in the text accompanying the Paris decision, um, you know, it does say that liability compensation is essentially off the table, and I don't think that that's necessarily changed. The text urges uh, developed countries to contribute to this fund, but as to how it'll be used, um, I think that's what you know they're really working on. But this should be new and additional finance because we. Um, already have a, a goal for mitigation adaptation finance. That's $100 billion per year. That was established in 2009 in Copenhagen, reaffirmed in uh, 2015 in Paris. And um, now they're in the initial stages of developing a new goal for uh, the climate finance targets. The $100 billion is already modest and sufficient. And um, we're not even there yet. We're about like 83, $84 billion, according to the last statistics I've seen towards meeting the hundred billion dollars. So we need to have new and additional finances to how this will be. I mean, you look at um, natural disasters, slow onset, non-economic and non-economic losses and damages. There's really so much to break down and how the details will be arranged for this fund. That's not um, in place yet. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of theories of how this could play out. Uh, right now, we basically know we have funding arrangements, um, and, um, and you know it's a major victory. And the decision was made as to what this will look like. I I don't think anyone knows. And when you look at you know other mechanisms, especially under the UNFCCC, like the Green Climate Fund, you know this took several years to get off the ground and become functional, and it's still an evolving process there. So this is going to be a multi-year process to really mm -hmm. um, 
operationalize it and bring it up to speed. It's it's going to be um, uh, diffi- um, a difficult process. I'm sure it's going to be politically sensitive, to say the least. And um, I think that's where we're at. But but not to deny the fact that like there's a lot of details to be worked out. I mean, you know, you going into this conference, like you didn't feel like you had an expectation that some kind of even just on paper agreement like this was going to be the result of COP27. Well, that's what we said we wanted. Um, yeah. I thought of course, that, of course. You know. I Sometimes what we want is not what we expect, though. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I, I remember we wrote our, our, you know, our policy statement and we said um, a successful co- outcome is contingent upon whether a decision is made to establish a loss and damage fund. And that happened. <laughs> so, you know, we didn't anticipate that um, necessarily. That was our hope. Uh, but it was accomplished, and that was really, you know, due to the um, work of civil society as well as the group of seventy-seven nations being in lockstep and really pushing for this decision to take place mm-hmm. at COP twenty-seven. I think Bloomberg Finance at one point reported that the AOSIS, the the smaller states, were threatening to walk out with um, of the conference without a deal if a decision wasn't reached. So. You know, party, parties in the global south were taking this seriously and they came to play and um, they got what they wanted, at least on this this end. Yeah. And I, I want to talk about, you know, the failure on the mitigation front. Um, but um, before we get to that, can you talk about Mia Motley and uh, her sort of finance um, sort of initiatives and uh, and what what that could lead to? Yeah, in the first days of the conference, Mia Motley just gave a speech that was absolute fire. And, you know, mm-hmm. she came with this Bridgetown agenda uh, looking to overhaul or at least significantly reform the World Bank and the IMF and, um, you know, essentially find a ways to mobilize $1 trillion in climate finance. We see that the current system's not working. We're not even meeting the 2009 goal. So how are we going to lock um this sort of finance and you know when she spoke and she gave you know the very she her speech was highlighted with you know really specific talks in terms of you know having a windfall tax a 10 percent windfall tax for oil and gas companies and really um, powerful stuff but i guess i wasn't necessarily following this part of the negotiations or, or what was happening at COP, but it seemed to be getting some steam and you know macron backed her um from my understanding and um, in the final text, there was language on transforming the financial system and, you know, some really powerful language to, to accompany this. And, you know, if we want to have, um, you know, go beyond the $100 billion goal, if we want to have, you know, significant amounts of finance for, for loss and damage, we're going to have to make significant reforms in the financial system. And, you know, what's, what's listed in Texas, you know, it's pretty much highlights um what is it? Well, highlights that $4 trillion need to be mobilized per year to reach net zero emissions by 2050. And the final text hi- uh, highlights delivering such funding will require a transformation of the financial system and its structures and processes engaging governments. And this is with the hope of um, an expansion of multilateral lending to governments by $1 trillion. So this was, you know, another, maybe it wasn't a surprise outcome for people um, following you know, following these events. But for me, I was quite pleasantly mm-hmm. surprised to see this make into the final text. Could you talk a little bit about the Global Shield um, 
initiative yeah. as well? So in the first week, we kind of heard that the developing countries, this was led by Germany with the backing of the V20, was pushing for a global shield. So I think Germany announced, I can't remember if it was like 170 million euros or 270 million euros. And then France, Ireland, Denmark, a few other countries. And then Biden in his opening speech and Kerry reiterated along that they support the shield. So this is looking at um, some sort of insurance scheme. But it did have the back of the B20 countries. I think the major concern was that the global shield was being used as a distraction uh, from the establishment of the loss and damage fund. So there is some value, I believe, mm. in the global shield. Um, I know, you know, um, you know, there's some issues with providing insurance uh, for the global south for something that they, you know, were largely responsible for. But there are some good uh, things in there, particularly, um, my understanding, there's some some direct loss and damage finance with, on, mm. within the shield. I'm not too familiar with the details. But the major concern was that this was going to be um, kind of a distraction. And it might have been a distract, you know, distracting tactic that ultimately failed. Mm. Um, I, I went to the launch of the Global Shield event. I sat a few rows behind John Kerry. So they each spoke and um, were, you know, talking about this as, you know, as a, the importance of the fund. And they, you know, I think the the Germany's minister said this wasn't a replacement for the fund, but I think there was some skepticism that this, this could be used. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the U.S. has not contributed anything. Kerry Wempe spoke, he talked about $11 million in disaster relief fund, which was not even for the Global Shield. So he's basically recycling this $11 million in, 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 in finance that wasn't even for the Shield, for an $11 million coming from the U.S. government. Uh, when we're talking about you know, billions, if not trillions of dollars is um, kind of a sad story. But I think, you know, it, it, the role of the Global Shield was kind of the big story of the first week. But I think that eventually got overshadowed by the establishment of the fund itself. Mm-hmm. And uh, tell us, you said uh, Lula was there uh, to uh, quite the acclaim. Yeah, I, I've never seen anything like what I saw when Lula arrived uh, in the beginning of the second week, there was, you know, I, I tried to attend two events he was speaking at. I got there maybe 90 minutes early, which, you know, I, I went to go see Petra speak. I got there 45 minutes early. I was, you know, basically front row um, <laughs> or for the Global Shield event. But Lula was like just hundreds of people pouring out the pavilion waiting to see him just bringing such, you know, electricity, excitement and so much hope that he um, just a, a really, really positive energy coming out of a, of a conference that had, I guess you could say a lot of negative vibes to say the least, um, at least heading into its uh, concluding moments. So I, I would say that, you know, it just felt like there was like a thousand Michael Brooks's there just waiting <laughs> to see him and, you know, just had that like, shitty and grin and michael always had every time blue would come up so it was it was really great to see and just that 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 energy and you know the the, just knowing that you know he was back in you know Mm -hmm. he has a in many ways environmental track record's quite good in in addition to lifting 30 million people off poverty so the 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 excitement was largely justified especially after the last four years that country's experienced yeah. And I, I just want to note uh, for folks who did hear our talk with Bronwyn, uh, Abde, uh, uh, Allah Abdel 
Fatah uh, is uh, still alive. And I believe what Sam, he, he's drinking again, but still, I mean, under extreme duress. And uh-huh. uh, I mean, uh, it looks like, a, um, uh, this is just the most recent, on November uh, 23rd, uh, 67 European parliamentarians called European authorities and governments to intervene for Allah's immediate release and to transport him on a European plane to his country of choice. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, government should step up on that front uh, too. I just wanted to note that for people curious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that had, I think the, the whole human rights situation, Egypt kind of had these scary sort of undertones throughout the conference. Allah's sister was there at the conference. She was present and, you know, you, you, there was moments where you know, Egyptian authorities were trying to intimidate her only to be stopped mm. by the UN security forces and kind of having this whole, I don't want to call it a side story, but just to have like the host country with this abominable human rights mm. record, um, having that as a major story in the conference was just, you know, it was, it, it was, yeah intimidating uh no i mean you've been you've been you've been you've been to a few of these and the you know just like your sense i mean like that experience must have been unique i mean obviously you know what's going on around there but like it seemed like it was a highly like scrutinized and like there's a lot of like security forces at at the conference more than yeah typical there was you know men in suits watching you in some cases if you're protesting filming you um, in the events mm-hmm. where Allah's sister was present, I know the German government filed a formal complaint against the Egyptian government in terms of um, uh, people being filmed and intimidated at, at um, a certain event with Allah's sisters at the German pavilion. So there's a lot going on. I mean, I wasn't super involved in that, but mm-hmm. you know, when you when you think about how important civil society is to these negotiations and how people were afraid to speak up because you're in a country where protest is banned. Typically at a climate conference, you have, um, you know, you have people, um, you know, you have a massive protest typically on a Saturday um, after the first week. And this year they, you know, people were just confined to the blue zone and walked around a few times and that was the end. So you, you saw a limited civil society and, um, it was, you know, problematic to say the least. And I think, uh, you know, there's a lot to break down following this conference this year in terms of having it in a country like Egypt. So what do you guys do now? Do you just prepare for the next COP? Is there other uh, conferences or what? what's the work uh, for La Ruta de Clima now? Yeah, well, we've been doing a lot more community-based. I think what we've been really trying to do lately is to take um, – community-based work and to bring it to the international level. I think that's where La Ruta del Clima has some added value. So the, the team's been doing some great work. We have a new report coming out tomorrow on the effects of uh, luxury style properties in, um, in Guanacaste and the social and environmental consequences of, um, surrounding that. And there is a climate angle linked to that. So we're trying to sort of link the community, these community stories and bring it up to the international level. Um, you know, our, um, the um, administrative director, Adriana um, Vasquez, she led a report with Oxfam, and she did some great work in terms of going to Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, looking at loss and damage on the ground that's already taking place. Um, that was not just her, but um, some other people in La Ruta as well, uh, really trying to connect the community to the international. And then we'll be mm-hmm. following the negotiations, uh, going 
most likely going to the intercessionals this year, but, you know, checking the negotiations, but also turn our, our work to the uh, national uh, community and regional level. So I think that's where the focus is going to be this year for us. Uh, where should people go to follow and uh, support you guys? Sure. Um, the, um, um, is our website so you can access our publications uh, you can check us out on Twitter uh, we have a pretty active Instagram page um, and then you can follow myself um, um, our director Adrian Martinez on, um, on La Ruta's web um, on Twitter as well so um, trying to keep uh, up to date we also have a podcast that we do both in English and Spanish so a lot of what we do is to uh, break down these sort of complex climate processes. What is the global stock take? What is Article 6? What is loss mm-hmm. and damage? And put that on a podcast. So if someone, you know, the average, um, someone who may not follow this stuff day to day can really have a good understanding of what's, go- what's going down. I like that uh, doing English and Spanish. We get a lot of requests to do that. And uh, I wish I had the capacity. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, that's a really uh, good. I'll, I, I'll plug that on Majority Report. Um, but yeah, folks, uh, Sam, thank you so much for uh, your work and uh, uh, filling us in. Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Sam. <laughs> that was awesome. Sam's a good dude. Yeah, I'm happy he was making it international for us. Um, yeah, I love it. I mean, left wrecking merchant Egypt, baby. I mean, that's, yeah, that's pretty impressive. Who <laughs> uh, built the pyramids? Um, uh, well, the, the, the grain, I think the, the Egyptian grain oh, yeah. growers association. Have you uh, seen the, uh, what's that ancient apocalypse thing? No. Oh, man. It's this guy. It's on He's Netflix like, or something? Yeah, and it's like the number one show on Netflix. It's this guy who's uh like um you know, just like hated by, you know, historians and anthropologists and obviously Joe <laughs> Rogan and all those guys love it because he's you know, standing out to the the well, he's a free thinker. People hate that. But he, you know, believes that basically there's like advanced civilization that was destroyed twelve thousand years ago. And it's just like it's I, I've watched a lot of it, I have to admit, because I love that kind of shit sometimes, where it's just like he goes to like an interesting archaeological site and like talks yeah. to the historian, and then he's like, But then I saw a rock over here, and I've bet that rock's been there for fifteen thousand years. Probably means it was Atlantis. And <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. I mean it's it's the same thing as I, I'm still fascinated. Uh, by ghost hunter shows, yeah. and I've I I genuinely can't believe in ghosts really anymore. There used to be a time, even like ten or so years ago, where like I could still get an eerie feeling, and even that, like Ooh. it doesn't really happen. I just, I just, I feel the material world, baby. It's all we got. But um, whether from the time where I was a young little Catholic boy to uh, that believed in like demonic possession, yeah. to, like now. Ghost hunting shows still, I still, it's like, it's like a, it's sort of like spatial poetry. Like I'm going into a place and I'm imagining some sort of, and it's not, it's not real. It's just basically 30 year olds scaring themselves with radio shack equipment. <laughs> like, um, in like abandoned, but I've done that. I, I went to abandoned sanitarium, uh, in Dunseith, North Dakota. People can look this place up. Uh, it's a big, big, uh, sanitarium that like was abandoned in the late eighties. And it's fucking awesome to go around this place. And it is eerie. 
That was an interesting tangent. We just went. I, I, I could have gone for. I could have gone for forty-five more minutes. We could go in the post game a little bit. Um, we're gonna jump over the post game. Patreon.com slash Left Reckoning. Um, everybody, thank you so much. Um, let us know. Uh, you know if there's anything y'all might want to see us cover in the next couple of weeks. I think we're gonna be talking very soon about all of these ballot initiatives, and I think that's a really under theorized uh, part of American politics. So we'll be talking about that next week. Um, and some more fun things coming up in December as well. Um, but yeah, if you're, you know, want to chill with us a little bit, I mean, I got some more ancient alien shit to talk about. Matt's got a live reading of the Babylon B. We take voicemails and calls and give, leave us a message at one nine four zero two eight nine seven two three four. Um, and, uh, yeah, jump over to the post game, patreon.com slash left reckoning and come see us thing. cutting room floor. Oh yeah. Cutting room floor. And what's or the, cut, the cutting room? I think that's me adding, tacking the, floor the cutting off. room. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, also, I just want to shout out the letter hack. Who made oh, yes, this, please. Uh, uh, image of David and I on horseback. And it's one of the favorite, my favorite things I've ever seen. You know what's funny about that? Hold up. If we yeah. have one second to be indulgent. Yeah. Be good to get out on a horse. I literally have that shirt that you're wearing. That I am with the green. I'm pretty close to it. I have like a green. I don't know if you can see really well, but like embroidered Western shirt. Right. I don't know if you can <laughs> a little bit. Anyway, yeah. Thank you so much um, for 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 drawing us. I love that that picture a lot. Yeah, it was great. I, I noticed it last night on Instagram, and it's awesome. Um, <laughs> What does uh, what does uh, Russell Wilson say? Let's ride. <laughs> let's ride. <laughs> Broncos country. Let's ride. <laughs> As you just suck it's ass. Losing. So <laughs> oh, but we might need. To, I got some good videos. We should do that in the post game. There's some great Russell Wilson shit out there. <laughs> um, yeah, come over to the post game, y'all. Let's let's hang out. Um, Patreon.com/slash/leftreckoning. I'll be back on Thursday for a Griscom stream, and we'll be back seven central next week. Um, but until then, see y'all. Peace.